I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the hostages in Gaza and hostages in general, we have with us two very special guests. We have Dr. John Alterman, who is a senior vice president at CSIS. He's our Brzezinski chair in geostrategy, and he's the head of our Middle East program. We also have with us Jason Rezaian, who's an op-ed columnist at the Washington Post and a senior associate at CSIS and works with John on a terrific commission that they've set up that discusses how to deal with hostages. So welcome to the program, both of you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Andrew. Jason, I want to go to you first. I want to ask you, the hostage situation in Gaza is is just, it's it's stark, but there was some success in getting some of them out. Was that really a success in your mind? And why do you think the negotiations have, have stopped? So I, I think it's such an important question. And, and the, the current ongoing hostage crisis in Gaza has been a really bold sort of flashing lights example of the need for the kind of work John and I have been discussing for the last year or more, because there's so many of the elements of, of hostage taking that we're, we're looking at involved. I would say that, you know, in a, in a situation that has been an unmitigated disaster and tragedy, the fact that 110 people were freed through negotiations during the time of of war has to be seen as as a success, a partial success, certainly. And these people should never have been taken captive in the first place. But the fact that, that the community of hostage families, Israeli families, that are also many of whom are, are dual nationals or, or multinational citizens that are being held, were able to to really push the ball forward so quickly and get the Israeli government engaged with the other side, it has to be seen as, as a sign of success and really, I think, calls out the importance of diplomacy even during a war. John, there's over 100 hostages that remain in Gaza. Today alone, the Israelis found three bodies of hostages who had been kidnapped What's the situation now, and why do you think negotiations have stalled or or halted even? Well, certainly we have a more difficult set of hostages. Women and children are not combatants. You could set up an arrangement whereby women and minors on the Palestinian side were freed in exchange for women and minors who were being held by Hamas. But when you start coming combatants, to potential combatants, to to people who were imprisoned by Israel for violent acts. The Israelis are much more reluctant to release them. And from a Hamas perspective, the hostages that Hamas holds, who are men of military age, are much more valuable. Some, in fact, are soldiers. But the record that Israel set negotiating for Israeli military prisoners in the past makes Hamas raise the price for military hostages it holds. Don't forget Gilad Shalit. Over the 
course of the negotiations, which stretched out for a very long time, Hamas was able to get more than 1,000 Hamas prisoners released from Israeli jails, including Yahya Sinwar, who currently leads Gaza. So I think in some ways that they were able to free some of the easier cases, but when you start getting to the more difficult cases, Hamas's price is going to be higher. Israel is going to be more reluctant. Ultimately, I think both Israel and Hamas think that time is on their side. And so it's hard to get either to a, a ceasefire or to a negotiation over hostages because each side feels that it has momentum right now and it will negotiate from a position of greater strength rather than a position of urgency. It's believed to be, though, that there's still a number of women and young people who remain hostages in Gaza. What are the prospects of getting them out? Well, I've seen some reports that say that, that, that one of the reservations that Hamas has is some of these people have been abused and they don't want people to, to be released to reveal the patterns of abuse. I could imagine that we could have productive negotiations and certainly having uh, men of military age who are not soldiers might be an opportunity for Hamas to, to show something if Hamas wanted to show something. My sense is Hamas looks at global public opinion, looks at, at where the U.S. position is, thinks the Israelis are running out of room, and they're going to be in a, a better space to negotiate from in several weeks where they are, than they are now. And the Israelis are looking at this and saying the military operations are continuing to destroy Hamas infrastructure. We're killing Hamas combatants. We are looking for Yahya Sinwar and other leaderships, Mohammed Daif and others. And we're going to be in a bit better position several weeks with Jake Sullivan going. And my understanding is basically said by the first of the year, we expect a different kind of operation. That makes it hard to do things in the interim because I think we're, we're, going, we're likely to see uh, each side trying to lock in whatever gains it can before we move to the next phase of Israeli combat. Both of you have thought a lot about hostages in the larger sense, not just this case, but the, the idea of negotiating with terrorists, which both Israel and the United States has done, is doing. The United States is currently trying to get Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkowitz out of Russia. There seems to be a little bit of movement on that. Jason, I want to ask you, what about this notion of negotiating with terrorists? Is it, is it something the United States and other democracies should entertain? Well, I think we have to unpack, you know, who is a terrorist and who is, right? And that's been part of the diplomatic and semantic challenge for the United States over the years. It has seemed more prepared to negotiate directly with governments who wrongfully detain Americans. But, you know, a wrongful detention is really just a state taking the hostage. That, that, that's all it is. It's a, the idea is that they're being used as leverage against our interests. I think you have to look at it from the perspective, and I'm biased because I am a former hostage. Right. But, you know, the the, the priority is saving and freeing your innocent citizen as quickly and safely as possible, right? That has to be the the priority for democracies when when these 
cases happen. Otherwise, the very essence of what it means to be a citizen is diluted. And I think, you know, all of us would agree that if you get on a, a plane and travel somewhere, we grew up at a time where we thought to ourselves, you know, I'm an American, you can't do that to me. And now it's becoming more, I'm an American, they might do something to me, right? And so I think, yeah. I think that, you know, we have to be pretty bold about, about this in the interim until there are much more effective, credible, meaningful punishments that deter this kind of behavior. You're going to see our government and other governments uh, negotiating for the release of, of their innocent hostages abroad. And the truth is the idea that we don't negotiate with terrorists as a policy has always been a bit of a fallacy. We don't negotiate until it's politically necessary that we do. Uh, and go ahead, John. Andrew, you generously mentioned this hostage commission that we're, we're co-leading with Ambassador Robert Bryan, the former National Security Advisor, Honorary Chair of Senator Gene Shaheen, uh, some really remarkable people. One of the interesting distinctions is that there's a difference in the U.S. government, the way it treats hostages and people who are wrongfully detained. It's governments that, that wrongfully detain people and non-state actors that take hostages. Hamas is in a weird middle ground between the two. It's sort of a quasi-government. A lot of terrorist groups take hostages as a business proposition. Hamas isn't interested in a business proposition. Hamas is acting like a government with bigger stakes, bigger ambitions. It's not about a small number of people who you're hoping to get $100,000 or $500,000 for. They're, in fact, not interested in money. Hamas is looking to position itself politically. So from a government perspective, it's essentially a government we don't talk to that wants government-level things, and that makes it difficult. The other thing that's, that's really difficult about negotiating over the, the Hamas hostages is it's, it has to go through a circuitous route with the Qataris talking to Hamas representatives whose relationship with and trust among the leaders in Hamas who are holding hostages is unclear. It's not always clear how much control Hamas has over the other groups that are holding hostages. They, they make representations about how much influence and control they have. But, but of course, it may be that they can't reach these groups. It might be some groups are, are doing this purely for money, and they are terrorist groups that are looking for money. But it's it's very complicated. You're talking about Islamic Jihad now, and, other. and all, and, and and you know, basically thugs, organized crime in Gaza. It was important to demonstrate the principle initially that negotiations with Hamas in Qatar could free anybody. That was the first step, and then you could have these these phased exchanges of hostages. But whether that encompasses all the hostages, what kinds of negotiations would be necessary to get what are perceived by Hamas to be more high-value hostages, and how you could convince Israelis in the midst of a war to free what they would see as high-value Hamas hostages, this gets very, very hard very, very quickly. I want to ask you guys, you know, there has been, and you're studying this on the commission, there's been an upsurge in hostage taking throughout the world. 
this case, you know, clearly underscores how difficult it is to free hostages. How isn't there something that we're doing or other democracies are doing that's emboldening hostage takers? I think so. And I think it is not as simple as the idea that we're negotiating for the release of people. Uh, I think what's emboldening hostage takers, especially on the the state side, you know, if we're talking about wrongful detentions, whether we're talking about Iran, Russia, China, Venezuela, Syria, I mean, these are the countries that, that do it the most often, but some of our friends do it as well. Uh, the the reality is there's nothing standing in their way. So when they have a, a, a policy interest, something that they can't get done through traditional routes, in the Iranian sense, it's usually about freeing frozen pockets of money. They're going to look for asymmetrical ways to get at it. I would never, ever, ever condone anything that uses innocent citizens of a country uh, and an abuse of those people, because this is really an extreme abuse of power against ordinary individuals. But in the vacuum of any sort of credible threat to doing it again, it would seem to me that governments especially are going to do this over and over and over. There's literally nothing in the international community, nothing in you know American policy in European policy, UK, Canada, that has been shown to effectively stand up against this. And that's really at, at the heart of what we're trying to accomplish in, in, in this commission, because the problem, is, as you've suggested, is just getting worse and worse and worse. So, so how do we get deterrence right? It's got to be, this, this is one of the toughest questions in, in any kind of policy, but how, how do we get this right? My first thought, and I'll let John chime in quickly, is that it has to be tailored to the individual actor who is doing it. There can't be a one-size-fits-all set of deterrents because the motivations for taking people are different in each case. So again, I'll go back to the Iran example because it's one I follow most closely. If there are pockets of money that Iran wants, we have to figure out how to take those off the table. And and maybe that means seizing those assets, or maybe it means not freezing them in the first place and finding other ways to, to go at them. But ultimately, you know, a, as long as there is some kind of incentive, a piece of cheese, right, they're going to go after them and, and they're going to use whatever means they have available to do it. Jason is highlighting the fact that, that we all think of, of hostage taking of wrongful detention as abhorrent. But in fact, because people are hostile doesn't mean they're irrational. Right. And there's a certain rational process that is built up around this. I was talking to a, another former hostage in Iran recently who said, this is their business model. They're just going to do it again and again. Yeah. Uh, and we have to find a way to break that cycle. One of the challenges of breaking the cycle, though, and one of the challenges of deterrence in general is how do you prove it's actually working because it's noticing the absence of something? And how do you actually figure out somebody's given up hostage-taking? There's always the threat of hostage-taking. So one of the sort of conceptual challenges we have is how do you sustain 
a practice of deterrence that the more effective it is, the less necessary it seems to be. And this is another thing that we're working with some very, very thoughtful, experienced people to wrap our heads around because we have to end this, but then we have to sustain practices that ensure it stays ended. One thing I'd like to add on top of that, Andrew, if I may, sure, is yeah. that you know the policy needs to to evolve with the different threats that are facing us. I mean, uh, about a decade ago, President Obama did an overhaul of hostage policy, and at the time, the number of cases were disproportionately uh, Americans being taken by. ISIS and other terrorist groups in the Middle East and, and in Africa, that's shifted. So the policy has to shift. The tools that we have available have to shift. And it may shift again in the future. But you know, I think that this notion that this is a problem that has, has existed since the birth of, of civilization and it's always going to be a problem, that's not acceptable. You know, I think we have to come up with ways to, to combat it. I think what we've mounted here is really the first group of its kind. And I hope I hope it's the beginning of a process to, to really weed out this, this scourge. What are some of the other strategies? You, Jason, you mentioned taking money out of the equation. What are some of the other strategies that should be considered when it comes to trying to deter both non-state and state actors from taking hostages? So you know we have international law what you call you know, global Magnitsky sanctions. We can prosecute people who are involved in this, this activity. We can detain them. We can we can seize their assets. We can ban them from travel. There's a whole list of of, of things that we can do. We can also go after their their relatives in the case of kleptocracies like Russia or Iran. So much of the wealth is ferreted away in, in foreign countries in the name of children or nieces, nephews, other relatives of regime officials. It's easy to track these people down. We should be going after them and their wealth as well. Because uh, I think, you know, until you don't individualize the punishment, it, it really isn't going to work. I, I want to ask you guys, what does it do? We're seeing this really in full view in Israel right now. What does it do to the psyche of a country and a people when hostages are taken? You know, I, I've been talking to people in Israel and they tell me how damaged the Israeli psyche is, how the Israeli psyche is pretty much focused on two things right now. One is the safety of Israelis. The other is is revenge. What is What does the hostage taking process do to a psyche of a people? You know, the nature of hostage taking is everybody feels vulnerable. So there's a way everybody can identify with people who've been taken hostage. Um, I think it's, it's particularly, has a particularly strong effect in Israel because Israelis feel that their entire security concept has been challenged. Israelis felt that they had figured out Gaza, that Gaza was not a threat, uh, as you know, huge focus on the West Bank, but a sense that, that they had managed to neutralize Hamas, that between restrictions on what could come into the Gaza Strip, between allowing work permits for people to come out of the Gaza Strip, 
by manipulating the kinds of payments, both coming uh, tax payments coming into Gaza from the Israeli government, support from the government of Qatar, the Israelis really felt Gaza was not a threat. And to have an unimaginable threat coming out of Gaza, not just breaching a supposedly impregnable barrier, but so successfully attacking army bases and other places that were supposed to be secure, completely blasting through the security around Kibbutzim and, and other areas adjoining Gaza, that the same way that everybody feels with hostages that you are vulnerable, after October 7th, every Israeli everywhere feels vulnerable. Everybody can identify with people who just were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I don't think Israelis have a substitute security concept for what they had. And, and this, I think, is, is what is so unsettling for Israelis because there's a sense that the political echelon has failed. The, the military failed. So what does that leave you with? And it, it seems to me that, that Israel will be unsettled for quite some time. And the hostage taking is, is a piece of it, but it's a piece of it that you can still feel every day. While the horror of October 7th recedes, the horror of the hostages who remain in captivity is something that, that people remember every single day. Yeah, we just had I some think, of the family. I'm sorry, Jason, go ahead. I was, I was just going to add the you know layer of hope. In the beginning moments of uh, the hostage ordeal, there's a, a great sense of hope that people will come home. When half of them come home and the other half don't, and then we learn of the death of some hostages, it kind of bleeds into hopelessness. And I think that coupled with you know, losing faith, as John indicated, in the ability of the government and the military to care for citizens is a recipe for disaster for that government. Yeah, uh, that's that's what I was going to allude to when I said, you know, the, some of the families of the Israeli hostages were in Washington this week and they seem to have completely lost faith in the process and, and are seeking answers from the Biden administration and from the Congress. And I don't know that they're they're going to get any answers anytime soon, but they, the hopelessness is palatable, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, I would say that, that I've never seen, and this is a, the biggest group of hostages here in the last decade or so that I've been following this phenomenon, but never seen such a concerted effort such an organized effort by the families to raise awareness and not just awareness, a call for action. And with every passing day that the remaining hostages don't come home and everywhere they go looking for answers, whether it's in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or here in Washington or London or wherever, you know, there are other nationals affected by this you know, I, I think the despair grows, and that's not an easy thing for 
communities to come back from, from these families to come back from, and ultimately from from the Israeli nation to come back from. And let me just also it, say that that from the perspective of working on the commission, this is a very unusual kind of hostage yeah. case. Right. Um, normally, hostages it's it's about you know ones and twos and and very small groups. Uh, these are, as you noted, hundreds of people taken from all kinds of locations, all kinds of, of descriptions. This is a very different kind of circumstance than is normal. And I, there's a way in which, as Jason suggested, that, that it creates a broader movement, but it also depersonalizes a lot yeah. of these cases. And, and one of the powerful things about hostage taking is the sense of identity and the fact that it is very personal. And I think that that one of the things that's very unusual is because Hamas took so many hostages simultaneously that there's something impersonal about it, which just makes it different. Again, again, one of Jason's points, it's a very important point. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to this. Everyone is different. This is really unusual. There are tools that we need to use. There are tools we have. Uh, tools the Israelis have that they've developed over time. But this, there's something unique about this. And, and then one of the things incumbent on governments is making sure it doesn't get repeated. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why it, it's hard to ask, Jason, it's hard to ask someone like you who has been a hostage, what's going through the minds of the people who have come home, who, who, you know, from this, this tragedy and, and the people who are still there. But I'm sure you think about it quite a lot and 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 you've studied some of the responses of of what former hostages of Hamas have have said when they've come home how do we wrap our heads around what what the hostages are who are still alive who are still there are going through and and what some of these people who have come home are now coping with yeah it's 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 such a good question and i remember when i first came out of captivity in iran I was taken to a military hospital in Germany and was matched with a with a government psychologist who deals with you know returned captives and he said very clearly when I asked him if I was going to be okay he said you know healing is is possible but it's not guaranteed and if you've seen one case you've seen one case when I think about these people and what they gone through and what they're still going through, both in terms of released captives and ones who are still being held. There's so many more layers on top of it. There's a war raging above their heads and has and was throughout uh, the time that that people have been held. Many of them were taken captive as they watched loved ones being murdered in front of their eyes. For those who have been released, there's you know inevitably a sense of survivor guilt. For those who are are still below ground, wondering if they've been forgotten, you know I, I can't imagine that they have a lot of access to information. And, and so it, it's just something that even if they come out an hour from now, it's going to take years not the rest of their lives to unpack everything that, that they experienced. And my, my heart just really um, hurts for, for all of these folks because it, it's not a fate that any innocent person should have to you know, 
one of the other things, and it, uh, listening to Jason, the other side of this, and some of the commissioners have talked about this, um, is they're very critical of the language, the president has no higher priority than yeah. freeing hostages. Because, in fact, in these circumstances, there are higher priorities than freeing hostages. Freeing hostages is important, but it's not the only thing. Israel is fighting a war. Hamas is fighting a war. The hostage piece is an element of this. There is profound human cost. And as Jason says, the cost can go on for decades afterward. But from a governmental perspective, hostage taking and freeing hostages is a priority that has to fight among other priorities. And it's not going to be the number one priority most of the time. Thinking about how do you talk about it? How do you not value hostages in your statements in a way that, that makes the hostage takers think they have something even more valuable that they should keep people in captivity longer to get a higher price for, you know, is, is one aspect of just how hard it is to do this. You want to comfort the families. You want to assure them that the leadership cares, but you don't want to reassure the hostage takers that they have a treasure for which they will get the highest possible price. And, and that just becomes uh, one of the elements of, of complexity, along as I said, with when you deter it, you can't tell when you're successful. I mean, this is a really hard conceptual problem as well as a practical one. Yeah. I am really glad that you all brought this commission together to study these issues. I'm grateful for your thoughts today and this is to be continued, obviously, because we're going to want to hear more about what your commission's doing on these issues and, and what you're learning. So thanks to both of you. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, John. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 